I went to a cafe this morning and found the New York Times and there was an article on the front page that I started reading and I thought, this is exactly what I was thinking to talk about in my sermon tonight. It's called. It's about vacation uh, travel and it's called, in an age of privilege, not everyone is in the same boat. It's basically about... Um, a sort of new, well, not new, but something that's being ramped up, a societal kind of caste system within uh, vacation and travel. Um, and here's just a quote from the, um, the article. When Royal Caribbean ships call at Labadee, uh, the cruise line's private resort in Haiti, elite guests get their own special beach club away from fellow travelers, an enclave within an enclave. And here's the quotation. We are living much more cloistered lives in terms of class, said Thomas Sander, who directs a project on civic engagement at the Kennedy School at Harvard. We're doing a much worse job of living out the egalitarian dream that has been our landmark, I guess the American dream. And then skipping to the very end, the last two paragraphs of this uh, long article, it says, although this kind of uh, pampering might be Good for business and delight those on the right side of the velvet rope. The gap between the privileged and the rest may leave everyone feeling uneasy, said Barry J. Nailbuff, a professor of management at Yale. If I'm on the back of the plane, I want to hiss at the people in first class, said Mr. Nailbuff, who has advised many Fortune 100 companies. If I'm up front, I cringe as people walk by. Um, John Paul Sartre, I guess, so I've heard, uh, said, hell is other people. Hell is other people. And maybe you can relate to that. I mean, it sounds like common sense. I mean, I've even said it, you know, scoffing uh, at the back of the plane, because I've never traveled first class, right? I mean, you know, hell is other people. I mean, talk about a place where you experience the realities of other people most acutely is, uh, I know, no better place than the airline. You know, I, I have small children myself, and I was flying back from New York and uh, the, the, uh, by myself, and the lady who was, I was in the window seat, and the lady who was sitting right next to me in the, the middle seat had a lap baby. And I thought, oh, gosh, not now, you know? I mean, but I've been there. I've been her. I've been in that seat with our, our youngest daughter. But, you know, even I, uh, with my own small children, thought that, you know, hell is other people. And that kid was actually great. Um, didn't even cry the whole time. Um, uh, that, that if you uh, want to know what hell's like, basically fly, um, you know, uh, second class on Delta Airlines. Um, but, you know, consider... On the flip side, uh, C.S. Lewis's vision of hell in The Great Divorce. Um, maybe you've read it before. In the first uh, or second chapter of the book, uh, he's flying on this bus from hell to heaven and his neighbor's explaining the sort of the realities of the parameters of hell to him. And it's basically that people are going further and further Apart, They live thousands, if not millions of miles away from each other. And the absolute worst ones, like Genghis Khan and Napoleon, live millions of miles away in great big mansions because uh, they, uh, they want to be far away from people, just as you would experience like on the airplane. You know, I mean, that, uh, that would... Uh, hell would be like being close to people, and so they want to get away from people because they're searching for happiness. But the more they search for happiness, the further and further they get away from each other. 
Meanwhile, compare all of that to the vision that we get in Revelation chapter 21, uh, toward the very end of the Bible, when all of evil is destroyed, all of longing, all of suffering is no more. St. John explains the vision that he has immediately after all these things go, go away. He says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And so the overwhelming uh, image of eternity uh, or heaven is that it is actually relational, that it involves other people. Uh, It's a city, the new Jerusalem, uh, uh, not only uh, 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 prepared as a bride for a husband, you know, like people. Uh, and not only will we be dwelling with God, but we will be his people in a relationship together in a city. Uh, and I don't know about you, but in a city, I think of uh, people living in close proximity to one another. And that's the image that he gives of eternity. So it turns out that Sartre might be a little off the mark that heaven is other people. That actually heaven is other people and in close relationship with one another. They live in a city, uh, in close quarters. I've lived much of my life in apartment buildings. Um, uh, uh, Most of my adult life. And right now we're living in this apartment building where my wife and I are the community hosts. We actually work for the developers to create community in this large apartment building. Um, and, I, and most of the apartment buildings that I've lived in, which is the closest proximity you can get in American life, really, to living next to other people, is usually the closer you live to someone, the further away you are emotionally, right? Maybe you've been in that situation either in a college dorm or in a hotel or in a business office in a big building that you work in, in cubicles, perhaps. Uh, the closer you are, the further it seems to be that I'm in relationship with those people. You know, I get on the elevator and I just want to, you know, look on my my phone and not say hi, you know, because if I start a relationship with that person, I might be getting myself into something and they live really close to me and I'm going to see them quite often. And so what Holly and I are trying to do, what they've asked us to do in this building is to flip that equation, to actually do the unexpected, to create something that's an image of like what heaven might be like uh, here on earth. Though I'm a realist, it will never get even close, but we're trying. Um, I was uh, talking to Doug Webster, who's new on our pastoral staff here at the Advent. Uh, He's a professor at Beeson. I was talking about, I've been thinking a ton about Revelation lately, but probably because it keeps coming up in our lectionary, and I keep thinking I ought to preach on it, but it's so intimidating. And so here I am finally preaching on it. But several weeks ago, um, talking to him about Revelation, he said, well, I wrote a book on, on Revelation. I thought, well, golly, that's the guy to talk to about this. And, um, and so in preparation for, for today, I thought, well, you know, let's see what, Doug has to say about chapter 21. And uh, when thinking about uh, this passage, he says, John's vision of the new Jerusalem is deeply personal and fully relational. What comes down out of heaven is not just a place, but a people. As the great prostitute was synonymous with the great city, so the holy city is synonymous with the bride of Christ. 
Once again, the relational impact of the holy city dominates John's description. And then skipping ahead a little bit, um, in response to the Sadducees who were trying to put him, Jesus, on the spot, Jesus said that marriage is a temporary provision for life on this side of eternity. And Doug's talking about marriage because there's no other real institution in, in this world that uh, is so close but marriage, right? Uh, here on, on, on this side of the Jordan River, there's nothing uh, more intimate that can be than marriage. Jesus said that marriage is a temporary provision for life on this side of eternity. They had posed the most complicated relational scenario they could think of. A woman had been married and turned to seven brothers. Each time a brother died, and the next brother in line married his widow, according to Old Testament law. Their question was simple. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, you are in error, because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. In other words, Doug says, if you think you're going to take your broken, sin-damaged relationships into heaven, forget it! Exclamation <laughs> point. Um, even the ones that we think are greatest, heaven's going to be even better than that. You know, what I mean, because. Uh, even in our own marriages, there's so much pent-up resentment and, and distance often at times. And uh, even the best marriages here on earth are sin-damaged and broken. Forget it. We're not even bringing those into heaven. But sometimes heaven, as Doug says, gives us sort of a foretaste of what it, might, what it could possibly be like in the best scenarios. I'm sorry, I'm reading tons at you today. I promise this is the, the last book I'm reading from. There's this book that I use with couples when I'm doing premarital counseling called The Useful Sinner. And it's about this guy who, uh, his name is J. David Hawkins, and he has been caught up in adultery for years. And uh, he decides one day that he's going to confess to his wife that he has been having this affair. And, um, and, and this is what he says about that interaction that he had with his wife when he admitted to the affair. Driving home from the hunt, he was hunting that day, I prepared the words I would use to confess. Louisa was in our bedroom sitting by the fireplace. I told her about the relationship and said that I was no longer involved. I then asked her what she wanted me to do, probably expecting the worst. After a brief interrogation, Louisa said she did not want me to leave. She asked me to kneel and pray with her. I do not remember the words she spoke. I only recall a clear sensation that a long fall into blackness had been arrested. Um, I, I have uh, couples read this book because uh, it's, it's an image of what could be the absolute possible worst thing to happen uh, between a man and a woman, and the complete unexpected happens in this marriage. The, the wife does the paradoxical thing, and uh, rather than uh, when he says he asked her what he, she wanted him to do, rather than what he probably expected would have been, you know, go away, <laughs> Um, I, I no longer want to be in a relationship with you. She dove in further uh, and grabbed him by the hand and kneeled on the floor with him and prayed with him and, and brought him into closer relationship. And this was in 1990, and they're still married to this day. They've, they've worked it out. But this I read to you because it is a foretaste of the sort of possible relational perfection in the New Jerusalem. 
but even better, but even better in heaven. Uh, Revelation 21 continues, He, God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And so whereas everything in life beforehand has been marred basically by death, even relationships, uh, in some way, death sort of has a pall over everything. Um, In the next life, relationships will be healed and perfected. We will be in right relationship not only with God, but with one another. And so no matter where you are, you know, you might uh, probably be struggling uh, with relationships, even if you were the nicest possible person, you know. I bet that in some way you struggle with different relationships. Uh, maybe it's a spouse or a sibling or a son or daughter or a coworker or a manager, manager. I don't know what. There might be some place in your life or places where there's pent-up aggression, um, you know, distance, cold-heartedness, um, judgment, uh, and sort of a sense of constant struggling. Basically, what I'm saying is, what is it that causes you to mourn? You know, where is there a sense of loss in between you and another person where the space seems to be kind of tainted by death? What makes you cry? Just as God will wipe away every tear, what now in this life makes you basically want to cry, not in happiness, but in sadness? Usually because not of physical pain, but because of psychological pain that's caused by relationships between other people. And, and he'll take away all pain. Don't even think about the physical, like I said. Where is there grief uh, between you and, and other people? Stress is basically that. Stress isn't about the things that we have to do in life. It has to do with the tension that we have between other people who have expectations on us. In other words, uh, how are uh, your relationships, uh, even the most important ones especially? How's it going for you? I saw this uh, image of uh, a, a sculpture, a art installation at Burning Man in Nevada. You know, the sort of like uh, this days-long hippie fest concert thing. I don't know. I've sort of heard about it growing up on the West Coast, but never been to it. A lot of my friends have. And one of the things they have are these massive art installations. And I saw this photograph of one where it's two people, like it's like a... Um, it's a, a, a structure that you can see through, kind of a skeletal frame of two people. You can make out sort of, you know, sitting down, leaning over their knees with their backs next to each other, almost as if a married couple having a fight sitting on the bed, right? And because it's a skeletal frame, you can see through it and you see inside of it what looks like a child in each one facing each other, trying to touch each other's hands. And basically the image that you're getting is of what's actually going inside of people who are, who are on, on outward appearances trying to get away from each other. Inside, their inner child is trying to reach out to one another. Do you, are you following what I'm saying? Haven't you been there before? Haven't you been there before when you're having a fit, you know, and your body's doing everything to leave the room, but your heart in every way wants to reach out to the person uh, and, but, but your fallen nature keeps you from doing it. That's what I'm talking about. That is the sort of image of what relationships are often like here on earth. 
Well, in John's Gospel, in chapter 14, Jesus explains, let your hearts uh, not be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. In my Father's house, there are many rooms and many, many other people. Remember, to contradict a Sartre, heaven is other people. Heaven is other people. And you can compare that to the King James Version, which translated it, in my father's house, there are many mansions, which is kind of problematic because that's basically, and it's not, it's not necessarily uh, what it's probably like, but that contradicts it. Uh, C.S. Lewis's very poignant image of hell, which where, where are their mansions in hell where people are trying to get away from each other. But in heaven, as our more modern translations give us in John 14 is this is is beautiful. Uh, there are rooms, there are dwelling places for us to live, not only with God, but with each other uh, in close relationship. Uh, and so you might think that heaven is like a, a perfected apartment building, you know, uh, and that might sound uh, that might sound terrible to you, but you're envisioning what apartment buildings look like here on earth. <laughs> the apartment buildings in heaven, uh, we can't even imagine what they're like. And I'm not reading it literally. It's probably something even better than all that I'm talking about. But you get the point, I hope. <laughs> um, well. Uh, you know, so with this sort of uh, vision of the approximation of what it's going to be like, how do we live here and now? You know, how do we live here and now um, where we still struggle, where relationships are still tough, where after I preach this sermon, you're going to be passing the peace and might want to avoid somebody right here in this room where, you know, when you leave here, you're going to uh, someone's going to have an attitude with you on the road or you will, you know, or you'll get home and you'll think, gosh, I really don't want to I really don't want to be spending time with this close family member of mine. You know, how do we live in this life where we still have the effects of the fall, but we, we have this vision of the hope and the future? Let me read the ending of this uh, same book to you again. Uh, after all the healing that this man and woman went through, uh, after the reconciliation post uh, admitting to the affair, Louisa and I have come to see God's grace as a complex unfolding mystery of beauty and provision, wrought with loving care in the midst of circumstances which, from our human perspective, often seem hopeless. Our prayer for each reader who is now in the midst of pain and trouble and his or her own making is that any feeling of hopelessness will be replaced with the perspective of grace. And within that perspective, the simple knowledge that God is just, caring, and in control. Well, you know, I mean, for what it's worth, take it. Take it or leave it. I hope it uh, changes something slightly in your perspective in terms of relationships, uh, not only with God, but most especially with other people. You know, there's a day ahead where the person that um, that you uh, that you think hates your guts the most, you know, you'll, your inner child and her inner child will reach out and finally be able to hold hands, whereas now, you know, it seems absolutely impossible. As the song um, we will. We heard earlier, if you were here when the prelude was sung, we'll sing at the very end of the service, says, you know, on, I stand on Jordan's stormy banks right now, uh, but I'm bound uh, for that promised land. I'm bound for the promised land. Amen.